Well, I'm excited to tell you for the first time, uh, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Today we begin our exposition of the book of Hebrews. Um, I anticipate that it's going to take maybe a year and a half, maybe two years, but if it goes like three, don't, don't hold me to it. Uh, I think as we walk through this book verse by verse, um, it's going to be about, about that time as I think about the pace of what we're going to go through. I'm excited about this book as we look to study it, because it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, it lists Jesus high. Even as many of our songs this morning have gone along that theme of of lifting Jesus high. The relentless argument of the writer of this book is that Jesus is better than anything else that we have to approach God. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than all the priests, whether high priest or or just a normal priest. He's better than them. He inaugurated a new covenant. He cleansed a holy place in the heavens for us. His sacrifice is better than any sacrifice that we might seek after. It's a good thing for us over the next year and a half that we are going to be looking to Jesus. He's better. He's God's Son. He's better than anything offered in the Old Testament. His sacrifice fully satisfied the wrath of God. He is what Old Testament saints looked for. Jesus is better you know, one of the things about kids that they, um, that they like to do many times is that they like to one-up each other. What they have is better than what their friends has. And what they can do is better than what their friends can do. And their dad is better than their friend's dad. In fact, in my research this week, I, I just typed in, my dad is better than your dad, and up popped a, an article on a television show. There was a television show called My Dad is Better Than Your Dad. Have you ever seen that show? Okay, some of you did. I never knew about the show until just this past week. It was a reality TV show where a father and uh, one of his children would compete against other fathers and children in five categories. First four were My Dad is Faster, My Dad is Stronger, My Dad is Smarter, My Dad is Braver. And then for the bonus round, My Dad Knows Me Better. And each round, they had some kind of competition to see if these things were so. Um, if you've never heard of the show, it only appeared like eight, sh- eight times. So, it stopped in, in April of 2008. But it shows how common this is. My dad is better than your dad. I'm better than you. I'm stronger than you. Children boast in their accomplishment. But you know what? It's not only children who boast in their accomplishments, is it? Adults do as well. I love the poem which Shel Silverstein wrote. My uncle said, how do you get to school? I said, by bus. And my uncle smiled. When I was your age, my uncle said, I walked it barefoot seven miles. My uncle said, how much weight can you tote? I said, one bag of grain. My uncle laughed. When I was your age, my uncle said, I could drive a wagon and lift a calf. My uncle said, how many fights have you had? I said, two. And both times I got whipped. When I was your age, my uncle said, I fought every day and was never licked. My uncle said, how old are you? I said, nine and a half. And then my uncle puffed out his chest and said, when I was your age, I was ten. (laughs) Such is the, the boasting of people. Sometimes you get quite annoying. If they take the truth and they try to stretch it to show how much better they are. But listen, when we're talking about Jesus, we don't need to stretch the truth in any way. Not at all. 
We don't need to work really hard to make Him look great because He is. He's greater than anything to which we might turn. It's interesting, in the Scriptures, we have warrant to boast in Jesus. It says, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6.14, May it be that I would never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our singing today, right? Boasting in the cross of Christ. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3 denoted one of three characteristics of the true circumcision, true believers. He says they worship in the Spirit of, Christ, the Spirit of God, they glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The second one there, they glory in Christ Jesus, kakatmai, means to boast. True believers boast in Jesus Christ. And I hope that over this next year and a half, two years, five years, ten years, whatever it takes us through Hebrews here, is that we would be great boasters of Jesus Christ. That we would learn to boast in Him. That we would learn to lift Him high. Now, there's a reason why the book of Hebrews lifts Jesus so high and shows how great He is. It's because there were those in the early church who weren't quite so sure. As the name bears out, the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew people, that is, Jews. The number of Old Testament quotes in the book of Hebrews is astonishing. I counted 40 times, more than 40 times, in which the writer of the Hebrews quotes an Old Testament passage. 40 times in 13 chapters. That's a lot when you compare it with other uh, texts of the New Testament. It just demonstrates the people who he's writing knew the Old Testament and viewed it as authoritative. The Shippians of the letter were Jewish people who were in the church. Somehow they had embraced Jesus. On several occasions, he writes to them as holy brethren, beloved, and brethren. Typical titles of those who were in the church. The writer speaks of their, their inclusion, right? They were partakers of the heavenly calling. They had heard the Word of God. He said that they had been enlightened. They had been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They had heard the good Word of God. They had experienced the powers of the age to come. They labored in the Word of God. They had ministered to the saints. Right? They, here they are. They're, they're church folk. Coming from a Jewish background, they'd come to embrace Jesus in some measure or come into the church to check it out. And yet there was a danger for them. They had a danger of falling away from the things that they had embraced. They were in danger of drifting from the great salvation that was extended to them. They were in danger of having a hard heart. They were in danger of turning away from the truth that they had heard. They were in danger of coming short of the grace of God as if they, they never quite got it. Oh, they were in the church. No, they were around, but they, they just never quite got it and fell away. And the simple exhortation in the book of Hebrews comes this way. It says, press on. Press on. Keep going. Press on to maturity. Pay close attention to what we've heard. Do don't, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Draw near to Jesus. Hold fast your confession. Don't forsake the assembling together. Don't throw away your confidence. But endure and run with endurance the race that's set before us. Here it is. It's to press on. It's, it's not just be satisfied with the status quo. Don't think you're okay because you attend a church service on Sunday mornings. Jesus is better. So press on. Jesus is better than anything in the Old Testament that you may have experienced. So don't neglect Jesus. Don't turn back. Nothing else can satisfy your life like Jesus can. So press on to know Him and to pursue Him. I want you to notice the importance of that little word, so. It is, it, it is all important. We consider the theme of the book of Hebrews. God always gives us reasons for obedience. He always precedes the imperative with the indicative. It's the declaration of Scripture that's the foundation for the obligation we're called to obey. There's always a sufficient, compelling reason of why we should obey, why we want to obey. In this case, the writer of Hebrews says, 
to press on. And you say, why should I press on? Here it is, a simple reason. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything else we might pursue in life. So pursue Him. And I, and I tell you, if you miss that word so, you miss the heart of God. If you miss the connection between the greatness of God and the pursuing and pressing on of Jesus, then you've missed the Gospel. Because that's what it is about. God doesn't say, press on! Alone. He doesn't say, hey, obey, go, serve. He says, Jesus is better. So press on. Gives us every reason to follow. Jesus is so gloriously great that we feel like we must press on. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It shows how great Jesus is that we might have no other desire to pursue after Him. There's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis. I want to quote. He said this, If we consider the unblemishing, unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy in Jesus is offered us. We are like ignorant children who want to continue making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the author of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about. It's about showing the glories of vacation at the sea so we might not be satisfied with mud pies in the slum. The book then really is an apologetic on the greatness of Jesus. Over and over and over and over and over again, this writer shows how Jesus is better than anything else ever offered to the Jewish people. And what else can we do? If Jesus is that much better, what else can we do but to press on? Well, my outline this morning is, is really simple. Point number one, Jesus is better. Point number two, so press on. Now, before we get into these, I do, I do want to um, say a few words about the book in general. As this is our first message, we need to understand a little bit of the background of, of Hebrews. First of all, we don't know who wrote the book. We flat out don't know. Lots of guesses have come about. Uh, the only thing we know about the writer is that in, in chapter 13, verse 23, he shows that he knows who Timothy is and is in close proximity to Timothy. So it kind of gives us a time frame when the book was written. But that's all we know. We don't know anything else about this writer. He didn't identify himself. There's no consistent teaching from church tradition. And, and with the lack of evidence, like any, people have always speculated. Some have said Paul. Um, some have said Barnabas, like the early church father Tertullian did. Um, Luther thought that Apollos wrote it. It says in Acts 18, verse 24, that Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures. And when you see so many Old Testament Scriptures quoted and explained, you say, oh, that could be Apollos. Could be. Some have even said that a woman, Priscilla, wrote it. In the end, you know, we don't know. So Origen's comment is going to rule the day. Origen, early church father, an allegorist, he wrote, who wrote the epistle? Only God knows. And that's what we're going to say. Only God knows who wrote this epistle. Um, we don't know. We'll just leave it at that. Now, regarding the form of this book, I think that this book is best understood as a sermon. All right? Oftentimes we think of uh, books in the Bible as letters, and, and I think it was, it was a letter, but it was a sermon that then was, was changed and transformed and, and modified just a little bit so as to be a, a worthwhile letter. In fact, next week, I plan to show you this and probably dig it deep into your hearts. 
Um, over the past two years I've been working on Hebrews, I've memorized Hebrews. Alright? So it's, it's in my mind, and next week I'm going to preach Hebrews to you from memory. It takes about 40 minutes or so. Uh, I think I can do it. Might mess up every now and then. But you are going to come away next week if you come when I preach. You're going to come away with, um, with just an understanding how Hebrews is a sermon. And it preaches so well, and it flows so well from one point to the next point to the next point. And I can, I can see it as maybe Apollos or, or Paul may have taken this, this uh, sermon and gone to the different, the different places and preached to these Jewish synagogues who, or Jewish churches who had come and embraced Jesus and were in danger of saying, but we like the Old Testament and in danger going back. He's saying, no, 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 press on. Let me show you how much better Jesus is. So it's a sermon. The author, we don't know. It is a sermon. And uh, I want to start with my first point. Jesus is better. The, um, the book of Hebrews starts like this. God, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. After he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And right there, he sets up the whole context of the book of Hebrews. Is that in the old times, to, to the fathers and the prophets, God spoke many different times, many different ways over a period of long different times. Sometimes he, he spoke in a thunderous cloud on the mountain. Sometimes he spoke by inspiration of a prophet. Sometimes he spoke with the finger of God. Sometimes he spoke in dreams. Lots of different ways, lots of different manners, lots of different time. But here it is, with finality in these last days. He's spoken to us in a totally different way. He's spoken to us in personality, in His Son. And then, right at the top of the book of Hebrews, He gives seven characteristics of the Son. He says, The Son, whom He appointed, heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And then in verse 3, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. He made purification of sins and He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. These seven characteristics of Jesus just, just lift Him high and speak about how he's, he's the heir of everything. How He made the world. How He is God Himself. And how He's the one that's came and purified us from our sins. Sets up Jesus as so high and so lofty and so mighty. And then His first point to show Jesus better comes in verse 4 when He says, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. And there, there we come with that word, better. It's the, the Greek word kraton, sometimes written kraton. But the same word, it occurs in the New Testament 18 times, but in the book of Hebrews it occurs 12 times. That's two-thirds of the time this kraton word, this better word, is used in the Bible. It is used in the book of Hebrews because the argument is that Jesus is better He's better. In this case, verse 4, he's better than the angels. Why? He's inherited a more excellent name. What's the name he's inherited? Verse 5, he's inherited the name of Son. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. There it is. Jesus has a more excellent name. than all. None of the angels was given the name Son. And then in verse 6, it speaks about the worship. How much greater Jesus is than worship. It says in verse 6, And when He again comes into the world, He says, Let all the angels of God worship Him. He, he receives worship from all the angels. Sets Him higher than the angels. And then verse 7 comments about the angels. What are the angels? Who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. See, but it's the Son who has a throne. Verse 8. 
It's the Son who has righteousness, verse 9. It is the Son who made the world, verses 10 through 12. And then another argument comes in verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? God didn't say that to any of the angels. He said it only to the Son. He said it only to Jesus. Because the angels, as verse 14 says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels are servants of us. But Jesus is our King. How much better Jesus is than angels. And he continues the argument in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. He, he, didn't, he didn't put the world in subjection to angels, right? We will judge angels. And then he quotes from Psalm chapter 8, here in chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, to describe how Jesus is, is over all things. And, and in his incarnation, just made for a little while lower than the angels, right? It says there in chapter 2, verse 6, one is testified somewhere, okay, that's Psalm 8, saying, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Not like the angels. And then he explains it. The end of there, verse 9. He says, For in subjecting all things to himself, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while, Lord of the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And he tasted death for everyone. Here is Jesus right now is lifted high and he is exalted. All things are subjected under his feet, including angels. He's better than angels. In chapter 3, he begins to say he's better than Moses. The key verse here comes in chapter 3, verse 3. It says, now he has been counted worthy. He is referring to Jesus. You can look there in the context of verse 3. He's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So here you go. you got a house which a carpenter spent a year building. And then you put them up together and says, okay, who has more honor, the house or the builder of the house? The builder. The builder is a person, flesh and blood. The house is just stuff that was put together by the ingenuity and uh, the manifestation of the carpenter. And so also, he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just so much as a builder of the house has more honor than the house. And then he explains his contrast between Moses and, and Jesus in verses 5 and 6. He says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things where he's spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if you hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope for him until the end. So, think about it. It says, Moses in his house was what? He was a servant. But Christ wasn't even in his house. He was over his house as a son. Jesus is a son. Moses is a servant. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than angels, better than Moses. And by the way, this would have shocked many of the Jewish people who would have fought about Moses and thinking high. In fact, there's a whole sect. The Sadducees lifted high the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And Moses was their king. And they looked to Moses. And then the writer comes along and says, no, no, but, but Jesus is better than Moses. So don't go back to Moses. Next argument comes in chapter 4. End of chapter 4. Jesus is better than the high priest. It says in chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus isn't just a high priest, he's a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's not an earthly high priest, he's a heavenly high priest. Jesus, the Son of God. And here's, here's the thing. Let's hold to Jesus, right? Let's hold fast our confession, verse 15. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus is His heavenly high priest. He is a perfect high priest who has never sinned, been tempted in all ways as we are, but never gave in to that temptation. And therefore, He can help us. That's why verse 16 says, we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need from this great merciful high priest. And this aspect of how greater Jesus is comes in chapter 5, verse 9. When it speaks about, and having been made perfect, right? Jesus, having been made perfect, that is, through His incarnation, and, and having, having gone past everything without sinning, having made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So it says is that Jesus became perfect, And He is the one who is our salvation hope. He's better than all the other high priests. And He's been according to the order of Melchizedek. So hold that thought. He's in the order of Melchizedek. Then then, then the writer jumps from chapter 5, verse 10. We'll look at chapter 6 and following a little bit later. But then in chapter 7, verse 1, he picks up this Melchizedek thing. And he talks about Melchizedek. In this point, he shows that, that even Jesus is better than Abraham. So he's better than angels. He's better than the high priest. He's better than Moses, better than the high priest. Now he's better than angels. I'm sorry, better than Abraham. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, okay, let's get back to this Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, who's king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. So, Melchizedek appears three times in the Bible. He appears in Genesis 14, he appears in Psalm 110, and now he appears in Hebrews. And the, 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 basically the plan is this, is that he met, in, you can read about Genesis 14, he met Abraham. As Abraham was off slaughtering these kings, he came and he met Abraham. And what Abraham did is he, he gave a tenth of all the spoils to Abraham. In fact, that's what it says. Right? Now consider how great this man was, verse 4, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. So he, he gave a tenth to them, to, to Melchizedek. Abraham, giving a tenth to Melchizedek, showing that, Melchizedek is greater. And Jesus, since he's on the order of Melchizedek, which it says several times in Hebrews, as a reference to Psalm 110, shows he's greater than, than Abraham. And in fact, that's what it goes on. It says in verse 5 of chapter 7, And those indeed who received the priest's office, that is Abraham, Aaron, Levi, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people to support them. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is Melchizedek, who it says in verse 3 has no... Father, no mother, no genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, made like the Son of God, meaning a priest perpetually. The one whose genealogy is not traced from them, Melchizedek collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. And then verse 7 comes here. Without any dispute, the lesser Abraham is blessed by the greater Melchizedek. And as Jesus was on the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood is better. He's better than Abraham. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. Better than the high priest. He's better than um, than Abraham, and now he's better than the priests of Aaron. In fact, that's the argument of chapter seven: is to show his priesthood is better. The key verse here is verse eleven. He says this. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, okay, that's the sons of Aaron, all these priests according to Levi. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, he poses the question: What further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron. 
You see what he's saying? He's saying, Psalm 110 prophesied of another priesthood. And what further need was there for another priesthood if, if the Levitical priesthood was perfect? The conclusion, the Levitical, Levitical priesthood is not perfect. That's why they need another priest. That's why Jesus is better than all the Levitical priests, all the sons of Aaron. And the argument really picks up in verse 18 where he says this, On the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. And that's um, talking about the whole Mosaic law and the priests there. And just even the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, he says in verse 19, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it is not without an oath. So here's a better hope that we have. A better hope than the Levitical priesthood. And, and, and then he talks about this oath. He says, for they, verse 21, Levitical priests became priests without an oath. But he, Jesus, became priest with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. It's a conclusion. His priesthood is better because God, God, God appointed Jesus a priest by an oath. But they just became priests by, by law of birth. Jesus much better. And then it continues on in verse 23. It says, The former priests, the Levitical priests on the, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers. You say, why? why? Think about it. They had many, many high priests. You say, why? Because death prevented them from continuing on. That's what 23, verse 23 says. Right? They die. You have a, a priest and he dies. And if a priest and he dies, he's got to be replaced by others. They lots. But Jesus, verse 24, on the other hand, because he, holds, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is a better priest than all the sons of Aaron because his priesthood is like forever. That's why he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. So verse 25 says, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than uh, the high priest. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the priests of Aaron. Also, he has a better covenant. His covenant, the covenant of Jesus is much better. Chapter 8, verse 6 is the key here. It says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much he's also the minister of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. The, the covenant that Jesus has enacted is better. See that word there? It even comes twice there in verse 6. He's a minister of a better covenant that's been enacted on better promises. The covenant of Jesus is better. And, and then he says this in verse 7. If that first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, the laws of the priests, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for another. In other words, if, if the Old Testament priesthood were perfect and faultless, there would have been no reason for another one. But then he says, for finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They didn't continue my covenant. I did not care for them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. A new covenant which has been inaugurated through Jesus. It's the point of chapter 8. The point of chapter 9 is that Jesus has a better tabernacle. Maybe you're familiar with the Old Testament system. Uh, you know how they had a tabernacle set up for those perhaps of us who don't. It's, it's helpful what he says in chapter 9. Uh, but I think he's just reminding these Jewish people who knew this very well. He says, verse 2, 
there was a tabernacle prepared. It was the outer one in which were the lampstand, it looks like a menorah, and the table and the sacred bread which was placed on that table. And this place was called the holy place. In chapter 9, verse 3, it says, Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Okay, now we know a little bit about the Holy of Holies. But he goes on to describe, in which was a golden altar and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in, in which were a golden jar holding the manna, back from the days of the wilderness, and Aaron's rod which budded, it's a sign to show that God is with the people, and the tables of the covenant. That was all in the Ark of the Covenant. And it said, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And I love what he says. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And then he goes on in verse 6 to describe this whole tabernacle thing. He says, but when these things are so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. And they did. They brought their sacrifice. They brought their offerings and everything. But into the second tabernacle, only the high priest entered. And he entered only once a year to offer, and not with his own blood, to offer the blood first for himself and then for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Okay? Many of you are familiar with this whole thing about the Old Testament tabernacle, but are you familiar with the significance of this? The significance, he begins in verse 8 to explain it. He says this, The Holy Spirit is signifying this. Here's what the Holy Spirit is signifying. That the way into the holy place, and that's the ultimate holy place, has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which can never make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, the the outer tabernacle is just a symbol for the greater reality, because the greater reality comes in chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is heavenly, right? Not made with hands, they say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He's got a better tabernacle, which is a heavenly tabernacle. And that's why it's the blood of Christ that's much better. And, and see, his, his sacrifice cleanses deep, not just external to the flesh, like I talked about in chapter 9, verse 8, 9, and 10, but deep within. He says, Verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ash of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? The blood of Christ is so much greater that it cleanses our conscience because we come up to the very throne, the tabernacle of God. Jesus is better. Do you start seeing it? He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priests. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the priests of Aaron. He's got a better covenant. He's got a better tabernacle. And then chapter 10, he's got a better sacrifice. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says, The law, which is a Levitical thing, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifice which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's reminder of sins year by year. 
For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And you see what he's saying there? He says the law and all these sacrifices, they're just shadows of the greater sacrifice to come. And as you offer them time after time, the blood of bulls and goats, they can never take away sins. If they could take away sins, they would have been offered once and never offered again. Do you know a sacrifice that was offered once that was so good it never needed to be offered again? The sacrifice of Jesus. It's much better. It says several times. It says in chapter 10, verse 10, by this will, that is the will of Christ, by, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's once for all that we've been sanctified through that one offering of Jesus. It says in chapter 10, verse 14, by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering, all time, Suppose the priests are standing and ministering. But Jesus, one offering for all time. And then after quoting from the New Covenant passage, he says in chapter 10, verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin because Jesus has offered the ultimate greatest sacrifice and Jesus is better. That's my first point. Jesus is better. Now when you look at the book of Hebrews, um, intermingled in the midst of the book, our various warnings. Um, some of them are just passed over. Uh, many of them are parenthetical, meaning that, that he's going on arguing how Jesus is better and then he just gives a warning and then he continues on just exactly what he's talking about before. Like, like for instance, if you look at chapter 1, verse 14, he's talking about angels being ministering spirits. The warning starts in chapter 2, verse 1 and goes verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. And then verse 5 picks up right where he left off. It says, he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we're speaking. Again, showing how Jesus is better than the angels. But tucked in there, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is this, is this warning passage. And, and the same thing happens um, near the end of chapter 5. Even if you, you look over there, chapter 5, it talks about verse 10. It says, Jesus has been designated as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then it says in verse 11, concerning him we have much to say and it's hard to explain. Basically, I can't tell you about Melchizedek because you become hard of hearing. And then gives him a warning all the way through chapter 5 and all the way through chapter 6. And then by chapter 7, apparently he changes his mind or something. He says, okay, let's talk about Melchizedek now. And he picks up just right over that. He's a warning passage. The end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6 is a warning passage. A parenthetical warning passage. And all of these warning passages are urging the people, Jesus is better, so don't go back to the Old Testament ways. right? Don't go back to anything else except Jesus. And they're all in this flavor of pressing on. I just, I just came up with one that just said press on, but, but they say such things like this. They say, don't drift away. Chapter 2, verse 1. They say, let us draw near. They say, let us hold fast. Let us run with endurance. They say, don't throw away your confidence. They say, keep going. Those are the kind of things that it says. Okay? But let's just deal with these, these warnings. I want to give you a flavor of them. And there are five warnings, and they get deeper and deeper and harder and harder every time. First one's pretty gentle. Let's just deal with that one. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, for this reason. You say, what reason? Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Here's my warning. Don't drift away. Don't drift away. It says, If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, that's the law of Moses, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, if, if, if things were judged and punished there in the first covenant, how much 
what does it say? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How are we going to escape if, if we've got something better and even the Old Testament punished? Don't drift away. How easy it is to drift. Um, I think about Chicagoland in uh, the 1990s. Chicago Bulls, Chicago's 1990s. There was bullomania in those days. You guys remember bullomania? Chicago Bulls everything. Michael Jordan, right, had led the Chicago Bulls to six world titles. The only time they didn't win is when he wasn't playing or retired, right? Um, or came back late in the season, as I, I remember. But six titles, and everybody was in the Bulls. And there were fans who would go to every game and watch every game on television. I remember talking to someone who watched all 82 games of one particular season in the 1990s because they loved the Chicago Bulls, and they were awesome. And, and, and now a decade later, how are the Bulls? <laughs> They're terrible. They're just awful. And, and what do you think has happened to the fan base of the Chicago Bulls in those times? They've just drifted away. Oh, sure, there are some diehards, but there are many people who have drifted away. Now, I want to paint the scenario for you. Paint the scenario that the Bulls won six championships in the 90s, and then 2000s, they won another 10. So 16 champions, maybe 15, just to leave it interesting, okay? But the 16 titles, what, if it, what do you think Bullomania would look like in Chicago right now if the Bulls had won 16 titles by this time? Beating the Lakers, right? Beating the Spurs, beating the Pistons, and beating all those guys. What, what, what would Bullomania look like in Chicago now? It'd be, it'd be just rip-roaring because the Bulls were the best. Now, now, there would probably be some people during that time who drifted away from following the Bulls for various reasons. We can, we can understand that. Well, there wouldn't be very many. And those who drifted away, you'd have to say, what are you thinking? Why are you rooting for the Lakers now? Aren't the Bulls the team? It would, be, it would be inconceivable to drift away from being a Chicago Bulls fan at that time. Listen, and so also Christ. Jesus is so much better, it's inconceivable that we would drift away from Him because of, of how great He is. See, Jesus, that, that parallel was, was close, but it, it, it's not even close because the Bulls would have lost at times, but Jesus never loses. And Jesus is going to win titles forever. Because Moses isn't going to beat him, and the angels aren't going to beat him, and the sons of Aaron aren't going to beat him, and the high priests aren't going to beat him, and Abraham's not going to beat him, and nobody's going to top his covenant. Nobody's going to top his sanctuary. Nobody's going to top his sacrifice. Jesus is going to remain on top all the time. And so, as fans of Jesus, let's not drift away. That's the first warning. The second warning comes in chapter 3, verse 7, um, which I'm saying, don't drift away. And this one is, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. And here the admonition comes from Psalm 95. He begins in in verse 7 saying this, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. And and then he goes back to think about who hardened their hearts. And there were Israelites who hardened their hearts. Who provoked me. It's in the day of trial in the wilderness where their fathers, he said, tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. God said, therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray from their heart and they did not know my ways. Verse 11, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And the writer of the Hebrews is basically saying this, don't harden your hearts. Don't be like the people of Israel. And so you think about the people of Israel, what, what happened to them? Well, they were in slavery in Egypt and God delivered them with mighty plagues, unbelievable plagues. 
just showed how great God was. To distinguish between those in the land of Goshen and, and those in Egypt. Unbelievable. Distinguish. I mean, it was, it was without doubt. The firstborn of every, uh, of every household, beasts included, were dead. Because the angel of the Lord did that, destroyed them, and, and then let them out. And even the Egyptians, they plundered the Egyptians so they would have enough gold to be able to carry themselves in the wilderness for many years. And then, when the Egyptian army was following them, God put a, a cloud right between them so they separate them for a day. And, and then the, the Red Sea split and they passed through the Red Sea as though they're passing through dry land. They looked around, the Egyptians are following them, they drowned in the sea. Because God had total control over that. When they came to, to, to Jericho, they saw the walls fall down just with trumpets. When they went to the wilderness, they saw God providing in miraculous ways. The bitter water was made sweet at the waters of Merah. And, and manna was provided for them in the wilderness. And then God provided water out of a rock. And what did the people do? They grumbled. And that's this passage referring to that, Exodus chapter 17. They grumbled. They hardened their hearts. They'd seen the glories of God and they hardened their hearts. You know how many God was happy with in those days? Of all the millions of people in, in, in Israel? There were two. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, with most of them, God was not well pleased. It's overstatement of the year. But only with two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were allowed to enter the promised land. He was only pleased with two because they hardened their hearts. And the, the writer here says, don't harden your hearts. Jesus is so good. You've got a great God. I mean, the parallel here in Psalm 95 is so excellent. You've got this great God. And why would you turn away from Him? And the, the admonition comes in verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But rather, verse 13, encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then, then, then the greatest statement comes here in verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You know, there's some passages in Hebrews that look like people can lose their salvation. But, but Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 sets straight what's really happening. He says this, You have become partakers of Christ if you hold fast the beginning of your assurance firm until the end. In, in other words, if you press on, and, and if you continue on, and if you run with endurance, and if you hold fast your confidence, you show that you have become a partaker of Christ. And the issue is, what happens if you don't continue on? What happens if you do fall away? Well, then you haven't become a partaker of Christ. Right? Your continuing faith to look to God shows that you've become a partaker in Christ. Right? In chapter 3, verse says the same things, that we are His house if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We hold fast our confidence, we hold fast our boast of hope in God, we are His house. If we fall away and don't hold, ha- hold our confidence and assurance, shows that we're not His house. Because genuine faith is enduring faith. Faith that falls is not genuine faith. It's a parable of the seed and the sower. Right? Four different kinds of soils. Some of it grows up, shows signs of life, but never gets to the point of bearing fruit and passes away. Continue, press on, because enduring faith is real faith. Alright, he says, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, he says, don't drift. Chapter 3, verse 7 and following, he says, uh, don't harden your hearts. And then, I like this one the best. Okay? Chapter 6, verse 1 says, press on. Because it goes right there in the text. If you look at chapter 6, verse 1. It says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us, what does it say? 
press on to maturity. And that's where I've picked up this phrase. Just one of them shows all of them. But I love it when a biblical, like the better word is a biblical word. The press on is a biblical word. The so is a biblical concept. Jesus, I think, is a biblical word. So I like, I like the theme we've chosen. Press on. He says this, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. Let's press on. Let's not lay a foundation again of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. You know, there's this Christianity out there that is always battling with salvation and saved. And, and, and what happens is people say, well, do I really believe in God? Have I repented from my sin or not? And, and well, we've got to go over that again. And, and we've got to you know, recommit our lives because maybe I'm on this side, now I'm on this side, and everyone's playing the fence. He says, let's leave those things. Let's decide once for all, we're pressing on to maturity. And that rep- I dealt with that. I have repented. You can see my life. It shows that I've repented. And I have faith in God, absolutely. And then he gives some other, some other things to go away from. From instruction about washings, right? It's probably baptism he's talking about. Instruction about laying on of hands, just the authority of church structure, of, of the resurrection of the dead, right? That, I mean, that's like a, a, a foundation document. He said, of course Jesus rise from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, my faith is in vain, I believe that. And the future judgment, that's like a non-negotiable. I believe it now. Now, we can look at those things and understand deeply about them, but let's not constantly go back to them and need teaching about, okay, now let me convince you the resurrection is true. Let me convince you there is a judgment to come. Let me convince you that you need to believe in God. You need to repent for your sins. He says, let's press on to maturity because, it's interesting, a lack of maturity is not a good state. Back up a little bit in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You've heard a lot of Christian truth. You've heard a lot of things. This time you ought to be teachers, but you have need again for someone to teach you of the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. And he goes on to explain this metaphor. He says that for anyone who partakes only of milk is an infant. Is what he says. But solid food, verse 14, is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to turn good and evil. And he says, you all have been listening to this teaching and you, you can just tolerate milk. You can't tolerate meat. You're just infants and press on to maturity because immaturity is not a good state. How many of you want your children to stay two years old forever? You don't. You want them to grow up. And that's what he's saying. Press on. Grow up. Press on in Jesus. And then what's interesting here, verse 3 is, 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 is very lightning because it shows the sovereignty of God in this action. Don't ever think that you can just say, okay, I'll grow up. And you grow up towards God because that will only happen, verse 3, if God permits. We should do that. It's the sovereignty of God in the growth of a people. If God permits, we will do that. There's some things that God permits and some things that God doesn't permit. One of them is this aspect of falling away, which is talked then about in verses 4 through 6. And this is a troubling passage because it speaks about someone who's been in the church and has been exposed to so much and has tasted just the the things and experienced in the church and then they fall away. It says this in verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, they come in church and say, well, this is wonderful. And have tasted of the heavenly gift. They've been been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good Word of God. They've heard sermons. They've tasted that. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. And then they've fallen away. For these people, because they've been so close and have experienced so much and seen the power of God, it says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Because they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. It's like the people coming out of 
Israel grumbling and complaining against God, God says, it's done for you. No, it's, you're dying in the wilderness. And for people who have come and tasted and seen the church and tasted and, and, and tasted the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, how good it is, and they fall it away, they make a mockery of God. Because God is so great and they say, eh, don't want it. Want something else? Like this. Suppose Juanita Milton made an apple pie. And um, we had potluck. Let's see, next Sunday is potluck. I encourage you all to stay. But and one, on the dessert table, there is a, uh, an apple pie, Juanita. And, and she picks it up. And she comes to you and says, do you want this apple pie? And then someone else comes along with a carrot just pulled from the ground, still raw, still got all this dirt on it, and says, no, let's make it a radish. And comes with a radish from, from the ground with the dirt still on it and says, here, what do you want? And you've tasted apple pies in the past. You've experienced them and experienced the joys. And you say, I'll take the radish. Thank you very much. It's impossible to renew you again to repentance. Juanita will never make you an apple pie again. (laughs) And then he goes on to explain just this metaphor a little bit. And all has to do with bearing fruit. He says in verse 7, For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake is also tilled, and she's a blessing from God. In other words, if the rain is coming, if the good Word of God is coming, and it's bearing fruit in my life and I'm progressing on, it's pleasing to God. But if, on the other hand, this rain comes and it yields only thorns and thistles, listen to the commentary of this, it is worthless, it's close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Chapter 6, verse 8. That's what he's talking about. He says, you're here and you're getting all this blessing of God, and if you turn away from that, you spit on Jesus Christ. It says it's done for you. Impossible to renew you again in repentance. That's the importance of pressing on. Okay, we've seen three warnings. We've seen don't drift, chapter 2. We've seen um, don't harden your hearts, chapter 3. We've seen press on, chapter 6. The next warning comes in chapter 10. And um, what am I calling that? I am calling that don't... Hang on here. Don't set, don't set it aside. That's what I'm calling it. Don't set Jesus aside. Don't set him aside. Because it begins to talk about that. He says in chapter 10, verse 19, We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, inaugurated for us through the veil of his flesh. And, and we have a great priest over the house of God. And so let us draw near with confidence from the grace. Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. And let us consider to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then he goes here, chapter 10, verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if we willfully neglect Jesus and and deny Him and and reject everything about Him, we set Him aside and we willfully follow our sin. It says there no longer remains an offering for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That is, the the ground that yields thorns and thistles, it's going to be burned. There's a fury of a fire that's coming. Now, at this point, you might say, well, it's willing sin. I don't think willing sin is when you're in the midst of sin, you're doing it willingly. We always sin willingly. But willing sin would be that that sets Jesus aside, that says, I'm not taking into account the sacrifice of Christ. I'm just going to go on and do my own thing. Maybe like some who say, well... You know, I can sin on Friday because I'm going to go to church on Saturday or Sunday. 
that would be willingly setting aside Christ. That would having a, a knowledge of what takes place at church and knowing that Jesus is the way. But you know what? I'll get cleansing at church later, but I'm going to sin now. That's the kind of willing sin that takes place. And then the terrifying thing comes in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, right? You set aside the radish and you're going to die without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think you will deserve who sets aside the apple pie? Who has trampled on the foot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. How much severe punishment do you think that person deserves? A lot. Now think about this. He says, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord will judge His people. In verse 31, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't test Him. Don't try Him. Don't fall away. Press on and continue on. In fact, that is what the whole thrust of chapter 10, verse 32 and following is. He says, Remember the former days, brethren, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by becoming made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. <laughs> accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. It shows these people are living by faith. Therefore, verse 35, don't throw away your confidence as a great reward. Verse 37, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For God says, yet in a a very little while, verse 37, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, God says, I have no pleasure in him. And the promise comes here, which is a promise that I think I can extend to most of you. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And then a whole chapter, chapter 11, talking about faith. And and the importance of that is that we're supposed to look at these people and they believed and pressed on, so likewise we need to believe and press on. We need to hold fast our confidence. We need to endure like they did. In fact, it says in chapter 6, verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be like these people in Hebrews 11. They weren't perfect, but they believed and trusted in God. And therefore, as it says in chapter 12, verse 1, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and every sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the races. I love the logo, right? Let us run. That's another biblical imagery pulling it in there. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a warning to fall away, but don't fall away. Press on. Alright? We have, don't drift. Don't harden your hearts. Press on. Don't set aside. And here it is, chapter 12, verse 15. Don't come short. Don't come short. He says in chapter 12, verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Don't don't come short of that. 
embrace the, God, the grace of God entirely. You know, it's interesting. Even if we talk about pressing on, it's not like we're earning or meriting anything. It, it's, it's by faith that we're, we're following after God. But we are enduring and we're embracing the grace of God. And let us press on. Let, let, let's not be like Esau. says in chapter 12, verse 16, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For afterward he desired to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected. He found no place for repentance, so he sought for it with tears. He wanted, he couldn't get it, because he couldn't find place of repentance. We've got to lay hold of grace. And, and then, it's, it's great, chapter 12, verse 18 through 24, he lays the contrast. He says, you know, there's this contrast of, of, of Mount Sinai. He says, that's not the mountain you've come to. You've not come to a mountain, it says in verse 18, that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound is... Uh, of words was such that those who heard, right, these are the people, the Israelites, begged that no further word be spoken to them. Moses, you go up and you talk to them by yourself. For they could not bear the command of even a beast touches the mountain to be stoned. Lightnings, flashes, no, we don't want any part of that. And even Moses was full in fear and trembling. But it says in verse 22 that you've come to a different mountain. You've not come to Mount Sinai, which flashes and just fear and trembling. What have we come to? We've come to grace. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled into heaven, and to the spirits of the right, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks here, it is better than the blood of Abel. It says, do not see to it, verse 25, that you do not refuse him who is speaking, because he's speaking from Mount Zion. And it says, for if they, those do not escape who refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Let's press on. Let's press on. This kingdom we have is unshakable. And our God, it says in chapter 12, verse 29, is a consuming fire. We need to press on. You want to say how you press on? We'll press on in chapter 13. There's lots of application there. But don't press on in chapter 13 apart from knowing that Jesus is better. Okay? What's the theme of Hebrews? Jesus is better, so press on. I mean, my, my heart for us at Rock Valley Bible Church, we would press on to know Jesus. Next week, I'll quote the book for you in its entirety, and I think that you'll be encouraged by it. I think you'll be challenged by it. You'll see how it's a sermon and how applicable it is for us to warn us away from complacent Christianity. It always, it always just weighs on the, on, the, on the fence. That's not real Christianity. Real Christianity is enduring Christianity because that's the Christianity that shows you have um, become partakers of Christ. Let's pray even for our time of study in Hebrews this next year or two. Lord, I pray that you would strike our hearts with the message of this book that that it would ring deep into our hearts. I know it has worked on me this last year and a half as I've worked hard to memorize this book in preparation for this day, in preparation for tomorrow. Um, I, I pray the warnings would speak first to me, that you would give me a zeal in you, give me a, a glory, a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, that I might share that with all of us, that we would see how glorious and how excellent Jesus is. And seeing how great He is, that we would delight to pursue on, to press on towards Him. And that verse reminds me, it's if God permits, we will do these things. And we plead to You, O God, that You would permit us to press on in these things. We need You to act. And I pray that You would convict hearts. Right? Maybe there's some here today who, 
who aren't believing in you, but who have rejected this whole Jesus thing, I pray that just the testimony of Scripture might convince their hearts that they would follow after Him. And for those of us who are on the fence, perhaps, I pray that you'd get us off the fence to follow Jesus 100%. And for those of us who are pressing on, I pray that you'd encourage us and strengthen us to do more. You'd help us to run with endurance the race set before us. We love you and thank you for Jesus who is better than anything else we can imagine. In whose name we pray. Amen.